Oh, I never tire of that harmonica. It's, it's good. It's good stuff. I do tire of these glasses, though. Do they make your eyes worse? Because it seems to get harder all the time to see. I don't know what this is, but... There, there I see something now. What is it? Old age? It's creeping up. Can't deny the truth. If you would please turn to Luke chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 17. Titled this one, The Greatness of John. And he surely was. And as we departed last time, uh, we learned that there was a Jewish priest named Zacharias. He'd been told by the angel Gabriel that his wife Elizabeth, who herself was quite an elderly woman, or at least much older, that she was going to conceive naturally. She would indeed conceive a son in her old age through the power of God. We'll observe then next week when we come back in verse 18 that this this announcement itself just leaves Zacharias in utter disbelief. He couldn't believe it. Certainly that emphasizes how old they both must have been. Elizabeth is so old, in fact, that in verses 36 and 37, Gabriel tells Mary that though it seems impossible that a virgin could conceive, even so, her relative Elizabeth has already conceived. The conclusion by the angel, nothing is impossible with God, right? So both the births of John and Jesus are miraculous births, but we mustn't view them as similar. John the baptizer, he was conceived by uh, natural relations between a human husband and a human wife. They were simply old. It wouldn't have been a lot dissimilar than Abraham and Sarah who when she conceived Isaac, he was about 100 years old and she was 90. It was a similar miracle to that, but with natural parents. Jesus Christ, by comparison, he was born out of a virgin's womb. He was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is, verse 35 of chapter 1, we will see, the holy child called the Son of God. The baby Jesus in Mary's womb is the handiwork of a holy God who decided to come and dwell among men. We call it the Incarnation. He was determined to become flesh and dwell amongst His people to reveal God to us. So Jesus Himself, is He's in a category all His own. He's the true goat or greatest of all time. But as we saw earlier in our Scripture reading from Matthew 11, Jesus declared that, All of the prophets who arose during the Old Testament period, of them all, none had arisen that was greater than John the Baptist. Why is that? What is it that makes John so great, so special in the sight of our Lord? This prophecy offered by Gabriel provides at least seven things. You might even see more, but at least seven things that would characterize someone who would be very great Not in the world's eyes, but very great in the sight of the Lord. What would that type of person look like? Let's read the passage together before we begin. Luke chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. The angel Gabriel speaks to Zechariah, saying, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. 
It is He who will go as a forerunner before Him in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn their hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient, of the, uh, the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous or the wisdom of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Amen? So the first thing making John great is that his birth is going to bring joy and gladness. There's going to be rejoicing at his birth, and he'll bring that rejoicing to many. And, and you know, you might say, well, that's reasonable enough. You know, having a, a new baby born, that's always a reason to rejoice, right? But simply the, the birth of a typical child is not what sets John the Baptist apart here. Every one of us was born in a, in a normal, natural type of way, that alone doesn't suggest there's anything uniquely great about us. No, what will make the people rejoice at John's birth is that this signals now that God is going to return to Israel. His physical presence is going to return. Verse 17, It is He, meaning John, who will go as a forerunner before Him, meaning Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Do you recall God's promise from last week as we were looking at Malachi? Chapter 3, verse 1, God said to Israel, this was through the final Old Testament prophet Malachi now, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear away before me, this is the Lord speaking, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. God is sending his messenger, a forerunner, to clear a path, clear a way for the Lord's return to His temple. Gabriel, he, he indicates now, this messenger, this forerunner, it's John. It's this baby here. What will cause rejoicing is John's mission that he will have, preparing a way for the Lord's return. So for Israel, this is really something to rejoice over. Very much so. God hasn't visited His temple A presence hasn't been in his temple for for about almost 600 years at this point. When we look back into 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we remember the the construction of the magnificent temple in Jerusalem. That would be by King Solomon. And when you look there, Solomon had arranged for a ceremony, a a rejoicing, and, and then a prayer of dedication for the temple. So we read there, when Solomon had finished praying... Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. It was full of the glory of the Lord. And, And just as God's Shekinah glory led Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness, through a a, a a pillar of a cloud pillar by day and, and a pillar of fire by night. Now pre- the presence of God's glory has filled the temple in the day of Solomon. This is a very visible display of how God was dwelling with Israel. He was reassuring them that he was residing with them. And as a result, when we look at Second Chronicles chapter seven, that same that same passage, the priests, everyone just rejoiced at the presence of the Lord. Subsequently, we learn as as we progress through the Old Testament, the Scripture says that the Lord met with the high priest every year on the Day of Atonement. 
There would be a meeting behind the veil at the Ark of the Covenant, and God would, would again manifest His presence to reassure Israel that He was still there with them. But unfortunately, then came a time of disobedience. There came a time of spiritual apostasy. And in about the year 590 B.C., God permitted the Israelites to be taken captive into Babylon. You're probably familiar with that as they were exiled. At that time, a prophet arose. His name was Ezekiel. And he had a disturbing vision that we find recorded in Ezekiel chapters 10 and chapter 11. And it was a very alarming, very, very disturbing visual for Israel. It was informing them that, that God's presence had departed. In chapter 12, God commands the prophet Ezekiel himself in, in, to do in a very symbolic act. He says, prepare your baggage for exile and leave the city of Jerusalem. And it's a really interesting chapter there. Ezekiel chapter 12, if you go and look, how he tells Ezekiel to, to tunnel a hole through the wall. He said, go dig a hole. Not only that, let everybody in the city see what you're doing. And it's a very drawn out passage how, how Ezekiel goes and he prepares, he gets his baggage, he digs this hole through the wall of Jerusalem. And in the sight of everybody, Ezekiel the prophet of God leaves. His departure signifies that God has now left Israel because of their disobedience. God makes it very clear, I'm gone. No more presence in the temple. Israel subsequently is exiled. The, the temple is completely demolished. It is razed uh, by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And then after 70 years of captivity, uh, you've probably heard of Zerubbabel. He comes back and, and he uh, organizes a rebuilding of the temple. It became somewhat of a disappointing replica. They didn't have the resources, they didn't have the materials, the ability to build it back as it once was. So it was in a way a disappointing replication of the temple. So you had a king come along, we talked about him a little bit last week, who really wanted to bring attention to himself. His name was Herod. So King Herod came, and he invested a bunch of resources into the temple, and he, he, he restored it. He built it up. He renovated it, where it became once again a very large and magnificent complex. This is the temple. You've probably heard of it. Herod's temple. It is referred to when the apostles and Jesus were there. But over that 590 some odd years, temple rebuilt, Herod improves the temple, cosmetically builds up the temple, makes it look nice. A lot of people there, a lot of priests ministering, 590 some odd years, something remained missing. Well, what was it? Presence of the Lord. No presence of the Lord. God's presence never returned. In fact, if I would imagine on the Day of Atonement and as the priest would go in, the high priest would go in to, to go behind the veil and, and, and meet with that Lord for the ceremony, I, I can just imagine crickets. God isn't in His temple. It's just a shell. It's just a building, empty. No, no God dwelling there. 
No presence of his glory. Just an empty building. And for the Israelites, their religion had become quite empty. It had become ritualistic. It had become pharisaical in a number of respects. Mundane for many of the Israelites, though there was always a remnant. And, and we have to constantly ask ourselves, or at least on occasion, we've got to reflect and say, have we let this happen to ourselves? Have we allowed worship to become empty? Have we, have we allowed our worship to become just a ritual, an observance? And, and do we come to church really expecting to commune with God and His people through His Word, or do we just come to church? Do we just go through the process Or do we truly notice, regard, revere the presence of the Lord? You know, Israel, they hadn't heard anything from from a prophet even for 430 years. That was Malachi, the last one. 430 years had passed. God hadn't been in his temple for 590 some odd years. So over that 430 years, there's no prophets, there's no new word from God. All they had were the predictions of Malachi at the end. They'd been waiting really for this messenger in silence. But then along comes John. Everything is about to change. He has a message that God now is returning to his temple, and this time he's going to be walking upright on two feet. God's going to walk into His temple in the person of Christ. So, in essence, John's message is one of rejoicing because God is coming back to the temple. God is alive and well. God is dwelling among man. John was great because that message brought rejoicing that God was again with us. Secondly, John was great because he prioritized his mission. He knew what he was Therefore, he knew what his ministry was. Verse 15, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. You know, John recognized, as a prophet, as a minister, as a representative of God, that his ministry demanded a reasonable separation from the world. The refusal of the wine and the liquor, it probably indicates that, that he had adopted a lifelong Nazarite vow. That'd be in Numbers chapter 6, you can read about that. But during such a period of a vow, a Nazarite would give a period of their life to the Lord, and, and uh, they would be completely set apart to God. With John the Baptist, this probably was a lifelong setting apart to God. It isn't Really, the substance of the wine itself that was inherently bad or sinful. Of course, we all know that Jesus, the apostles, other Israelites, even Timothy in the New Testament, partook of at least some wine. But the, but the vow of the Nazarite required complete abstinence from anything that was on the vine. Couldn't have wine, you couldn't have grapes, you couldn't have the seed of the grapes, you couldn't have the skin of the grape. Couldn't have any of it. And, and, and you also have to realize that this, this was a staple of that culture. The grapevines and everything and the way that they ate and, and, and stuff, that, that, was a, that was the staple of their culture. The Nazarite couldn't cut their hair. 
So they looked a little different, had long hair, longer than most. So what's the point? What's the point with that? I would say the point for us is, when you're prioritizing the Lord's work, you don't have to partake of everything that the culture partakes of. And your life ought to appear a little bit different. It ought to be a little bit set apart. There ought to be some measure of noticeable separation from your life versus everybody else when you're set apart for God. There was a church that had trouble with this. They struggled with it. It was the church in Corinth. And uh, they had a difficult time accepting this. And, and if you read Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, a large part of, the, of these letters is a, is a rebuke to the Corinthians' behavior because they thought that they could look like and act like and behave like just the world. Even worse than the world in some occasions. You could be sexually immoral, you could get drunk, you could bring lawsuits against one another. You know, they were a real work. It's like they took everything that was bad in their culture, which Corinth was real bad, and they just added a little flavor to it. Sometimes made it a little bit worse. They didn't pursue in their spirituality any level of separation at all. They didn't look for separation. And Paul corrects them in 2 Corinthians 6.14 saying, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. What, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And then he says, Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. So John was, gre- was great because he realized he couldn't live just exactly like everybody else in the world lived. Something about him had to be noticed as separate to the Lord. Set apart to God. Holy. And I expect if he'd lived long enough, he didn't. He was executed. But if he would have lived long enough, John would have appreciated an exhortation to the church in Ephesians 5.18. That says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. So, so thirdly, John, who was great, again in verse 15, he was great because he was Spirit-filled. Filled with the Spirit. And, and we're going to have a number of occasions here in the, in the coming weeks to talk about what that means being filled with the Spirit or Spirit-filled. We look in, in uh, the opening chapters of Luke. Later on we'll see that Elizabeth, Zechariah, Jesus, they're, they're all uh, spoken of as being filled by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. So we're going to go much more deeply into that topic and discuss what Spirit-filled is in the coming weeks. But let me merely say today that it doesn't involve some bizarre emotional experience. Spirit-filled doesn't involve uh, fantastic visions, mystical trance. It, It doesn't have to have miraculous occurrences around it to be spirit-filled. A person doesn't need to in order to be spirit-filled. There will be churches that will tell you that. You know, if you don't have something miraculous to show for it, you're not filled with the Spirit. That's garbage. It really is. We're going to see that being filled with the Spirit involves immersing yourself in the sword of the Spirit. That is the Word of God. So that you live and respond in a manner that is in harmony with the Word of God. That is being filled with the Spirit. Later in chapter 3, we'll see that there's a spirit-filled prophet. The word of of God came to John the Baptist. As a result, his preaching ministry was one that dispersed 
and disseminated the Word of God to everyone in the region. That alone would have made him stand apart from the, pro- from the crowd back then and today, probably. He, his Spirit-filled ministry was uniquely one of the Word of God. It was always full of the Word of God. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, singing to one another, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's a Spirit-filled life. And and so his was one uniquely of the Word of God. That made him great. Fourthly, John was great because his ministry was attractive to people. It was attractive to people. He, He was very magnetic in the way that he did things. He was uniquely evangelistic. And in verse 16, it tells us that many of the sons of Israel turned back to the Lord their God because of his ministry. You know, don't overlook this point. In the ministry of John the Baptist. It's very important. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, informs us that John, in his preaching, had re- called for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist called for repentance from sins and toward God. His Spirit-filled ministry did not promote health, wealth, prosperity for everyone who'd come through the door. You don't see that. Yet, yet although he was one who was committed to exposing sins, talking about sins, teaching about what the Word of God says about sins, and rather than covering up sins, he actually exposed them, still, huge crowds came out to him. Huge crowds came to John the Baptist. Mark 1.5 tells us that all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Why did they come? Why did they come to hear John? What was it about John? It's because John gave them the one remedy that they needed for their life. Forgiveness of sins through the repentance. That's what they actually needed. Confession. They needed to tell the Lord what they had done wrong, what, what's in their life that was separating them from God. Repentance and confession of sins. You won't see that in a lot of ministries today. And yet this evangelistic approach that, that John had, it turned many of the sons of Israel back to God. It was a very successful ministry I'm just going to say, you know, away with this whole notion, with with what we see with John and Jesus and the apostles, away with this whole notion that that you have to become just like the world in order to win people to Christ. You've got to get down in the mud with them to win win them over. You know, that's just an excuse to roll around in the mud. It, It really is. How often I've heard Christians write in books or say, you know, you know, I really need to get back to my, where I, the life I left. I need to get back with my friends. I need to win them, so I'm going to meet them, you know, and we're going we're gonna to have a good time. We're going to get together. We're really going to yuck it up. Because you'll hear this. You've really got to meet people just where they are, right? How often do you hear that? Folks, that's not an excuse to win people to Christ. That's an excuse to go back to your old way of life. To be around the old people of your life. Um... As a result, your friends say when something like that happens, you know, I knew nothing changed about that person. 
I knew there's nothing new about them. They're just like they were before they accepted Christ. Same thing. Nothing's changed. So you blow your opportunity for a witness because there's no level of separation. Do you see the balance there? You can be so separated that that you have no relationships with anyone from the world, but you can be so immersed in your old way of life that you have no separation and nobody sees the work that Christ has done in your life. John the Baptist had separation. The apostles had separation. We, we read that John, uh, Jesus, excuse me, you know, he was a, accused of being a wine bib and a glutton, you know, so he, he must have been, you know, having a good time. No, no. Scriptures don't imply that Jesus was a wine bib for you young folks. That's a habitual drinker. Je- the Scriptures do not imply that he was. That actually would have disqualified him from church office. Jesus wasn't a wine bib. He was accused of being one. Jesus was righteous. John was righteous. The apostles lived a life that was righteous. Trouble, yeah, we'll get to that too. We do. They had a troubled life and so do we. Yet their behavior of all of them was attractively righteous. It was attractive. They were different. They were in the world. They weren't of the world. Their behavior was magnetic. People wanted to be around them. You know what that means? means they weren't weird, too. We have to look at the other side of that. You know, you find people today that go around and they act very, very strangely in the name of the Lord. They, they can often talk weird, dress weird, behave weird, I, I guess to gather attention to themselves. And, and many people don't take them serious because they just act weird. We also have to be aware of that. John the Baptist, I know we have our stories from growing, growing up and everything, He wasn't a carnival sideshow. Not by any means whatsoever. We're going to discuss John's apparel, his diet in chapter 3. And and that apparel and diet sounds strange to us, but it really didn't to the people of his day. In fact, John was wearing the appropriate apparel for a prophet at that time. He was eating the appropriate things that you would have seen in the wilderness from a person who was living that type of lifestyle at that time. So, so people didn't look at him as like, you're completely out there. No, he was attractive. He was, his ministry was attractive. Fifthly, John was great because his preaching turned the hearts of the fathers back to their children. How about that? Verse 17, John provokes fathers to ponder how their example was going to affect the next generation. This implies that John was concerned about what type of spiritual influence are you leaving behind for the rest. And and some light can be shed on this from from a verse in Malachi. You probably noticed in in verse 17 that most of your translations have part of the verse that is in all capitals. Do you see that? When you see that in a translation, it means that it reflects a direct quote from the Old Testament. Just so you know, that means that it's quoting from the Old Testament when you see all capital letters in your translation. In this case, it's the very last verse of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, verse 6. And there Malachi says that this messenger will come to restore fathers and their children, adding, so that I will not come to the land and smite them with a curse. 
God is saying through this, this messenger that He's going to come and, and restore families and re, restore the hearts of the fathers and mothers to their children so that the Lord doesn't have to come and curse them. It's a ministry of restoration. Uh, this is a passage, by the way, Malachi 4, 6, Malachi chapter 3, that, that John the Baptist would have studied very intensely growing up. You know, as he grew up, he, he would have said, well, this is about me. This is about my ministry. This is what I do. I turn hearts of parents back to their children. I'm a messenger clearing the way for the Lord. So he, he knew what his ministry was. He knew what his mission was. And he preached that the next generation is in peril. The Lord might come and smite the land with a curse. He was very concerned about that. Um, he was not married. He had no children. Yet John was very passionate that the, the, the fathers and the parents, the mothers, understood how their decisions were going to affect the next generation. Very prominent theme throughout Scripture. Our, our spiritual influence on others is some, sometimes described as a spiritual heritage that we're passing along. It's, it's an inheritance. One of our songs earlier had uh, lines about that. Our spiritual inheritance is something that is ultimately given to us from the Lord because every good gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. Everything good that we receive comes from the Lord, yet it's also handed down in some respects through our parents. We receive it in some regards through our parents. King David wrote in Psalm 16.5, he says, The Lord is my portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot meaning you support my portion. The lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. David recognized as king of Israel and the covenant promise made to Israel and what he had been uh, blessed with in, as a heritage, he knew that was good. He called it a beautiful heritage. Beautiful spiritual heritage. Heritage, And it comes from the Lord, yet I myself even identify many of the blessings that God has given me have come through my parents. Many of them. Uh, in many ways, God used them to transfer a, a godly, a biblical heritage to me, even before I was a believer. They, they taught me how to honestly earn money. How, how to manage a job. How to work with my hands. They taught how to rise early in the morning. We see that in the Proverbs. Uh, they taught us to be generous to people. Go to school. Don't get into debt. Take baths regularly. Those are all biblical principles, not to get into too much debt. Now, all of these are passed along through the heritage given to us through our parents. So what kind of heritage are we leaving to our next generation? John was concerned about that. What kind of heritage are we leaving if it is the television that is babysitting them? By our own model, what type of heritage are we leaving when it is always the phone that is distracting us? We wonder why they're always on it. What kind of heritage do we leave when it is the school system that gets to raise them rather than ourselves? Their craving for merchandise consumes them. Our culture of 
Sex destroys them. Our generation's just done a horrendous job of spiritually preparing the next generation. We're paying the price for it. You know, the self-centered interpretations of the Bible that even the church has adopted, that, that it's all about man, the vapor that's here for a little bit and then gone. Not so much about Jesus is what gets taught too often. It's all about you. It's not all about us. It's all about Him. Uh, instead of teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, sound doctrine, teaching and admonishing. That's what Gerald does when he's, when he's choosing uh, the, the hymns and the songs. What is it teaching? Is it teaching? Is it admonishing or correcting? If not, it's not the type of music we should be singing in church. We are to teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's the purpose of them. Um... Worship itself has devolved into a personal, emotional experience. We haven't treated our children as a heritage from the Lord. We haven't treated the church as a heritage either that we're going to be passing down. The strength of the local church suffers because we haven't prepared the next generation to come up and to take the church in their hands and go further with it than we have gone. That's what we need to do. We need to get their hands on ministry. We're talking about that regularly. We need the younger folks to step up into ministry. We need everyone to step up into ministry. Don't get me wrong here at all, but the younger ones can't delay. Gerald was sharing with me this week, I believe it was Al Mohler, that went to a finishing school. He was 12? If you don't know Al Mohler, he's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Outstanding man. Brilliant man. And and he can communicate things to, to, to a level where we can understand them though he's brilliant theologically. And he, and, he had, and he ministers at the church, he ministers through the seminary, and he ministers online. And at 12 years old, they were already making him stand up and learn to practice speaking in front of people. How did he get so good? Practice. We need to get our younger generation, all of them, Jonah and everyone, involved in ministering to the church. Ministering to the church. By the time they get off to college, you're going to be handing the mantle to them. John the Baptist was very concerned about the next generation. He had a very prolific discipleship program. You know, some have perceived him as a complete loner. Oh, he was just always alone in the wilderness. Nothing could be further from the truth, actually. John had many disciples whom he taught, at least two of them that he prepared, at least two that he prepared, ended up becoming disciples of Jesus Christ, Andrew and John. They were previously disciples of John the Baptist. He prepared them. Uh, John's disciples, they loved him deeply. When he was in peril, when he was in harm's way, they didn't, they didn't uh, uh, defect him either. They stayed with him. We read in Mark 6.29. It informs, him, informs us even after Herod had, had beheaded John the Baptist, it says that John's disciples, when they heard this, they came and they took away his body and they laid it in a tomb. They were concerned about him because of all of the time that he put into the next generation. You know, God considered John great because he prepared the next generation to pass the mantle on. So we won't be here forever. Sixthly, verse 17 tells us that he also turned the disobedient to the attitude or the wisdom of the righteous to the just. Turn the attitude 
to the uh, of the right to the attitude of the righteous, so that as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's what he was doing, making people prepared for the Lord, and he prepared them for the Lord's arrival. His preaching challenged their minds to think about the future implications of everything that they're doing. He challenged them. He told them, you know, you're going to eventually meet Christ face to face. He was preparing the way for Christ to come. And in order to prepare them, he preached repentance from sin. Matthew 3, 2, we hear part of his, part of his typical preaching was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everybody knows that one. I'm sure he preached much more. But we all know that one. What, do, what does repent mean anyhow? What does the word mean? You know, we've been told that original Greek word repent means a changing of one's mind. That's true. Repentance, biblical repentance represents a changing of a mind that results in a change of behavior, a change of life, a change of actions. You can find the word in passages both used to turn away from sin and to turn towards God. It's exactly what verse 17 teaches. John's ministry redirected the disobedient toward the attitude of the righteous so that they'd be ready to meet Christ. A complete turning is what John's preaching did to the culture. Uh, I like how the, the NASB translates this term, attitude. The disobedient towards the attitude of the righteous. You know, the original Greek term here is not the typical word for wisdom, Sophia. It's a different word. Instead, verse 17 has somewhat more to do with our changing our attitude towards disobedience and changing it more towards the attitude of the righteous, of the just. Which admittedly is wise. That is wisdom, right? And, and you can find uh, uh, John was challenging people to adopt an attitude of the righteous or the just. And, and our attitude about sin changes us. It changes our behavior when, then our life gets cleaned up so that we're ready to meet the Lord. That's what John was preparing them for, to meet the Lord Jesus. And through his church, Christ is preparing, he's purifying a people to come and take as his own possession. In Titus 2 verse 11, the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus, a young minister, he was on the island of Crete ministering. He was also to prepare people for Christ's return. Paul wrote, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." You know, you know, after I got saved, I expect that, that your experience, if you're a Christian here today, it was similar. After I got saved, my life started cleaning up. The indwelling Holy Spirit changed my attitude about sin. Started turning, turning me more towards the attitude of the righteous. It wasn't overnight. I'm certainly not perfect by any means. I certainly have a long way to go. Yet day by day, my attitude is that I hate that which the Bible rejects as sin. I hate it when I see it in my life. Brings me to 
A final point, number seven. I'll make this very quick because we're going to come back to this topic again. We're going to talk about it when we look at the miraculous conception of Jesus Christ in the womb by the Holy Spirit. I can assure you from verse 15 here today and from numerous passages, Old Testament and New, numerous, that John the Baptist, he was great because he recognized, he knew that which is in the mother's womb is a child. He knew that firsthand. He knew it himself because he was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. I can assure assure us all today that God's Holy Spirit didn't go to fill some tissue. It's not just tissue. It's a child in the womb. Those are children. And our attitude of repentance, our attitude of a changed life ought to reflect what the Bible makes so perfectly crystal clear. There's no way getting around it, Old Testament or New in the Bible, what that is in the womb. And, and, and people need to change their minds about the murder of defenseless children. We need to just confess it. Why can't we recognize what the Bible recognizes? Confess it as God sees it. It's a grievous sin. What is happening? And, and, and as we change our attitudes, we can be reassured. We can be reassured by God on the, on the subject of abortion. John 1 9, 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All we need to do is identify that which is sin, confess it, repent. When the Bible's clear about something on this point, with so many passages, John again says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Sin is sin. Sin is sin. Um, God welcomes our confession of sin. There's going to be a moment of reflection during the Lord's Supper where we can each, myself included, reflect on our sins, reflect on who we are, change our attitude. But before we do, do you notice anything in particular about these seven things? These seven things that made John so great. I'll say John was certainly in a league all of his own. Don't get me wrong there. He was the man. No, no denying that. But if we're relying on his personal greatness to carry on the church, we're in big trouble. He's gone. He's gone. No, from our scripture uh, reading earlier, Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is none arisen that is any greater than John the Baptist, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater even than he. He who has ears, let him hear. This is kind of an enigmatic statement. Uh, Let me read a couple quotes here before we take the Lord's Supper. From a couple good study Bibles on this passage, it should bring some clarity. The first is from the MacArthur Study Bible. It says, John was greater than the Old Testament prophets because he actually saw with his eyes and personally participated in the fulfillment of what they only prophesied. They prophesied he was part of the fulfillment, so he was the greater. John continues, But all believers after the cross are greater still because they participate in the full understanding and experience of something that John merely foresaw in a shadowy form. The actual atoning work of Christ. We have seen on the cross, through the cross, something that was, wasn't quite clear to John. 
Here's another one from the ESV study Bible, a really good study Bible as well, which reads, John's mission was uniquely privileged because he prepared the way for the Messiah and the kingdom. But those in the kingdom of heaven have the greater privilege because they have actually entered the kingdom in its new covenant reality, as we have, and become partakers in the new covenant through the blood of Christ. We have a greater privilege than John. Do you see the point? Our mission today is no less than that of John. Our mission is great. And and in fact, these seven items that made John so great in God's eyes, of all of them, do you know how many we can participate in or work on or fulfill? All seven, folks. All seven. And I'm going to ask the men to come forward now and uh, begin to distribute the Lord's Supper as I briefly review these to you. Follow with me very briefly. John's ministry ministry brought rejoicing because it signaled God's returning to dwell among his people. Remember with Israel in in the temple? Today, our ministry brings rejoicing by announcing that God's presence through the Holy Spirit is currently dwelling with the people. Amen? Number two, John realized his credibility as God's messenger required a reasonable separation from the world and the activities of the world. A reasonable separation. Not hard to do. Third, John was filled with the Holy Spirit and his ministry was immersed and characterized by the Word of God. Acts 4.31 tells us, those who are filled with the Holy Spirit speak the Word of God with boldness. He spoke the Word of God with boldness. He was filled with the Spirit. We can do that. Fourth, John was evangelistic. He turned many hearts back towards the Lord. That's what we're here for. Fifth, John taught parents to turn their hearts toward the next generation. He practiced discipleship. Sixth, John prepared the people for the coming of Christ. We prepare them, as 1 John tells us, for the returning of Christ, so that we won't shrink away in shame when He comes. So we too are preparing people for the return of the Lord. Seventh, recognizing the attention that God places on children in the womb. You want to be great in the sight of God? You want to be really great like John the Baptist was great? This is a pretty good start, folks. It's one that's endorsed by Gabriel. Kind of hard to go wrong with that one. And none of these items are out of reach for any of us today. None of them. None of them. 